0: Okay. Starvone's right in here. Hey guys, look who's here! Hi! Oh guys, I'm so sorry, I forgot the cheese. I'm so sorry. sorry. I I actually I I brought five different kinds, so hopefully that helps. sorry. I told you people like pineapple on their pizza. Well, I hope we haven't scared you off permanently, but we'll be here again next week if you want to join us. Yeah, I'll be here. We have three kids. We've had them about three decades now. I'm not sure I'm getting a lot out of it. You know, from the beginning, the flow of resources had been pretty much one way. Even the delivery process was really hard. Of course, Nancy played a key role, but I was coaching all through it, and it was exhausting. And then when they got born, we invested a ton of time and energy and emotion, and they just took and took and took housing, food, clothing, education. They're all gone now. The flow of resources has never really turned around. We get a Carter present every once in a while. Overall, the financial return on investment has been quite low, just has. I've been married since 1983. I'm not sure I'm getting the bigger piece of that pie either. Sometimes I empty the dishwasher or I do a load of laundry for no reason at all. She doesn't write me a thank you note or call my mom to tell her what I've done or anything. Now, you all are a shrewd group of people. I'm pretty sure that if I were to talk this way, you would tell me that I was missing the way family life actually works. Family will always frustrate you if you approach it as a consumer who's trying to get something back from it. Family is something you give yourself to. It's in the giving that the gift comes. It comes when you're not looking for it. It sneaks up on you the first time a baby smiles at you or when you think of a gift to give your dad that makes him cry. Or when you're at a party and you look across the room at the woman that you married and your heart aches with love and you tell her she looks the same to you now as she did 35 years ago and you wait for her to say the same thing back to you. And she doesn't because she loves you deeply, but she also loves the truth, and that's part of what you love about her. It's in the giving that the gift comes. And the great question of life is, are you using your gift? When my paternal grandmother died, my dad's mom, My grandfather called my mom and he said, Kathy, I was going through some of Florence's things in the attic and there's a box of old blue dishes and I was just gonna give them away to the Salvation Army but they've got blue in them and you like blue so you can have them if you want them. My mom went up to the attic and she could not believe what she saw. These dishes were the most exquisite china my mom had ever seen. Each piece was hand painted with a beautiful forget me not pattern, 24 karat gold around the rim, mother of pearl inside the cups, handcrafted in a factory in Bavaria that was destroyed during World War II, so they were literally irreplaceable. My mom had been in the family for years. She'd never seen this china. She asked my dad. My dad grew up in the family, he had never seen it. So she asked some other relatives and eventually got the story. My grandmother loved dishes, but her family was quite poor. She worked as a maid when she grew up. So when she was growing up on real special occasions, confirmation or graduation or so, she would get one teacup or one saucer, one small plate. Now she did not get married till she was 39 years old and by that time she had the set. She was Swedish and Swedes are very careful with special gifts. So every time she got a dish, she would wrap it in tissue and put it in a box and store it in the attic and wait for a very special occasion to use it. No occasion that special ever came. And my grandmother went to her grave with the greatest gift of her life, unseen, unwrapped, unused. My mom got a hold of those dishes, and she uses them promiscuously. They have become treasured by my siblings, so much that we've had a running argument for decades about who will inherit them. Now, to have a treasure like this and never use it, you might as well destroy it. (laughs) Uh, That was not one of my grandmother's cups. I just wanted you to get the point dramatically. I don't actually have any of the cups. My mom is giving them all, to my sister Barbie, my bratty little sister Barbie. That's another point. What a sad thing to go to your grave with the greatest gift of your life never used. Now, this is precisely why the Apostle Paul one day wrote these words to the church in Corinth. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. In other words, you have a gift. You have a gift infinitely greater than a set of dishes. It has been given to you by God through the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual gift. And for you to identify it, cherish it, use it, is critical both to your own destiny and to the flourishing of God's family, our church. To go to your grave with God's gift to you, unwrapped, unused, unthinkable. We're focusing together about what does it mean to belong to God's family here at Menlo. Every campus, I'm so glad you're joining us for this message. And what I want to talk about this weekend is this. If you follow Jesus, God doesn't call you just to go to church. God calls you to serve his family. So for the rest of this message, I want to imagine that I'm talking specifically to somebody who knows nothing about spiritual gifts or the nature of the church as God's family, or the role of servanthood in Jesus' account of human greatness and flourishing. If the Apostle Paul was with us in the Bay Area today, I believe this is what Paul would say, I don't want you to be ignorant about. Okay, so here we go. First of all, don't be ignorant that God created you to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. Paul said, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were made by God to do good works, not accumulate good things. And we're often encouraged in our day to have a bucket list, usually very expensive trips or very exotic experiences before I kick the bucket. It's kind of interesting. The Oxford English Dictionary says, most likely bucket here in kick the bucket referred to the beam that a pig would be hung from by its feet when it was being slaughtered. So kicking the bucket was a pig's death throes. You are not a pig. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will not be a bucket kicker. We have it on the authority of Jesus himself. Whoever obeys my word will not taste death. Death will not be the end of your experience, but the beginning. And the real list that matters is not the trips that you take or the places that you visit. It's the service that you offer and the lives that you touch for God. God made you specifically to be able to do that in a unique way by gifting you through the Holy Spirit. And then God called you to serve. This is from 1 Peter but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instrument to do His work. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word priest. In the first year of our marriage, Nancy and I got to study overseas. Actually, it was made available to us through the generosity of folks at this church, although we didn't know it back then. And we got to go to Ireland that year and meet a man named Father Ryan. He was an elderly priest. He had been there so long, he actually assisted the priest who christened Nancy's grandmother way back when. It was an isolated little village in Ireland. Father Ryan had never met a Protestant clergyman, ever. And when he found out that I worked at that time as a pastor at a Baptist church, he was fascinated. And he asked me, so you're a Baptist, are you? Do you believe in God? I said, yes. And then kind of slyly he asked, and do you believe in Mary? And I said yes. I didn't say what in particular I believed about her, but yeah. And then he talked about what a priest does. We christen them when they're born. We marry them when they get wed. We hear confession and pronounce forgiveness over their souls and preach over them when they die. We do it all. We hatch them, match them, patch them, and dispatch them. Why would you belong to a church that doesn't have any priests? So this business about priests and what a priest does is very important. Now, In the ancient world, priests were not so much like clergymen in our day. Uh, Among other things, there was no separation of church and state. So great leaders of state, people of great power, were also priests. Julius Caesar was not just Caesar. One of his titles was Pontifex Maximus, the Most High Priest. It was a title of transcendent dignity and majesty. There was in Israel... Uh, as elsewhere in the ancient world, kind of a two-track system. There was the regular people track, and then there was a priest track. There was a holy place where only priests could go. There were prayers that only priests could say. There were sacrifices that only a priest could offer. There were clothes that only a priest could wear. There was forgiveness that only a priest could pronounce. Then Jesus comes along, and Jesus changes everything. Jesus gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross for our forgiveness. What priests had been pointing towards all along, Jesus ultimately, finally did. Now you might think that that would mean the end of the priesthood. But it was actually exactly the opposite. It meant that now, in Jesus' community, everybody who follows Jesus is a priest. This became known through the reformer Martin Luther as the priesthood of all believers. Peter says you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, but you all are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In other words, no more two-tier system, no more being divided up into the professionals and the amateurs, the priests and the non-priests. The term minister was never actually used in the early church for a group of special leaders. It came from a word that was used for just waiting on table, serving. Everybody was a minister. Nobody in the bleachers, everybody in the game. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God is in your life and the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual gifts and they are in you to be used. Sometimes people go to their graves and they never use the greatest gifts God ever gave them. God, there's another key point about serving. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. God gifted you to serve. We're told, to each person has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here's God's plan. This is the beauty of the church. We're talking together in this series about what it means to be a part of our church. The church was planned by God to be led by people who have the spiritual gift of leadership, to be shepherded by people who have the spiritual gift of shepherding, to be taught by people who have the spiritual gift of teaching, to be hosted by people who have the spiritual gift of hospitality, and so on and so on and so on. And this is not optional. There is no plan B based on credentials or human-made traditions. God's plan for His church is that it should be organized and operated according to spiritual gifts. And for any church to fail to do this is to defy the Holy Spirit and deny the authority of the Scripture. And for a long time in the church, this is what people did. And they'd never seen anything like this. They were so excited, they couldn't believe it. And everybody, free, slave, rich, poor, male, female, said, I have a role to play, I have a gift to bring, I have a dream to pursue... Everybody was a priest. But here's what happens. Over time, the church will sometimes begin to slip back into a two-track system. And this would ebb and flow over the centuries. Now, when I was growing up, often the common idea in my tradition was this. A bunch of people might get together to form a church, and then they might say, we'll hire a minister. We would use that language. What would the minister do? He, and it was always a he in that day, he would do the ministry. He would actually enter the ministry. His job would be to study the Bible, preach the Word, visit the shut-ins, pray for the sick, lead the board, arrange the service, shepherd the flock, print the bulletin, recruit the volunteers, marry, bury, comfort, counsel, and console, master theology, exegesis, homiletics, leadership, administration, finance, management, worship arts, and nursery recruitment. I have seen job descriptions for pastors that Jesus could not do. Now, what would everybody else in the church do? Well, they would watch the minister do the ministry. That is not God's plan for His church. Everybody who follows Jesus has been given spiritual gifts. That's you. And the best way to find out what your spiritual gift is, the best way is actually start serving and see how effectively God uses you. And it might be kind of trial and error. Another thing I don't want you to be ignorant about, God changes you when you serve. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi that had a lot to learn about this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a place where status was a real big deal. Power was a real big deal. Paul says to them, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, Humility is one of those qualities of the Spirit, one of those virtues that you cannot acquire by the application of willpower. Today, I will be humble. Look at me being humble. Humility comes as a byproduct of surrender and servanthood. A woman named Indra Nui was born into a setting that tended to discourage women from realizing their potential. So every night at dinner, her mom had Indra and her sister write a speech like they were running to be some particular world leader, a president or prime minister or something. And then their mom would tell them, who she would vote for based on what they wrote, and have that daughter sign a paper that she was that world leader for a day. So Indra grew up believing she could do great things, and she did. One day, she was voted president of PepsiCo. You might have noticed just this past week, uh, she is retiring after a tremendous 12-year run there. She came home that night, and as it happens, Her mom was visiting from India when she was voted in, and she said, Mom, I have great news. And her mom's response was, Your news can wait. The house is out of milk. Please go get some. And Indra said, Why don't you ask Raj, her husband? And her mom said, I'm not his mother. I'm yours. Plus, he looked tired. So Indra went out, got the milk, but she came home fuming. Well, I hope you're happy, Mom. My news is I was named president of Pepsi today. That's what I was going to tell you. But, oh, no, you needed someone to go get milk. It's so interesting. She tells this story about herself and her own development. Her mom said to her, you know what? When you come home, you are a mother, wife, daughter, just like your husband is a father, husband, son. No one else here can take your place. When you come home, leave your crown in the garage. I love that. We all need to hear that. When you come home, leave your crown in the garage. Jesus, Paul says to that little church at Philippi, did not regard equality with God as something to be used to privilege his own status. He humbled himself. He left his crown in the garage. He became a servant. He got the milk. See, when you serve, God changes you. And qualities like humility and love and compassion and other-centeredness grow in you. I would not want you to be ignorant about this. God uses you when you serve. Paul says that the church is actually the body, the presence of Christ on earth. And what this means is we all need each other. Paul says the body is a unit. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And Paul goes on to talk about how deep the implications of this are. If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. I've never heard anybody say, you know, I've got a terrible headache today, but boy, my back feels terrific. Body doesn't work that way. Body's a unit. If the foot's not working, you may have great ears, but they're not going anywhere. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, One of our more missionally aggressive staff members said, you might have heard this, I'm an elbow on the body of Christ. I love to jab people to uh, get involved. And it's kind of fun to think about what part of the body are you? You might be the mouth or the ears. You listen really well. Or the spine, you've got great courage. Or the heart or the hands or the feet on the body of Christ. I will tell you what you're not. What do we call an organism that lives off the body, that takes nourishment from the body, but does not contribute to the body? Well, that's a parasite. Nobody wants to be a parasite. Paul never calls anybody that. We are the body of Christ, and there are no useless body parts. There are no body parts, no persons that are not needed. When people with gifts of help aren't helping, gifts of encouragement don't encourage, when shepherds don't shepherd or prayers don't pray or singers don't sing or greeters don't greet or people with hospitality gifts don't hospitalize, then the church doesn't work. One of the great reflections on this is from a tremendous Christian thinker and servant, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote in a wonderful little book called Life Together, Thus it is a good idea for all members to receive a definite task to perform for the community, so that they may know in times of doubt that they too are not useless and incapable of doing anything. Every Christian community must know that not only do the weak need the strong, but also the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of the community. And then. I would not want you to be ignorant about this. God will reward your serving. And if you ever get tired, these words from Paul are for you. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You know, you probably never do this, but sometimes I will do an act of service and then I'm afraid it might not have gotten notice and I might not get credit for it, so I'll feel like I need to point it out. Hey, I emptied the dishwasher 3 weeks ago. Nobody even asked. We weren't even out of dishes. I just did it. There is nothing you do that God does not see. There is no service you offer that God does not prize. There is no love you give that doesn't get built into the person you're becoming and the world that God is redeeming. Nothing good is ever lost. No matter what people on earth see or don't see, applaud or don't applaud, the harvest is coming. And what that means is your servanthood will be a part of God's pleasure, divine delight. So, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. We want to be doers of the word and not just hearers to actually apply it. Now, the word for this weekend, the message to not be ignorant of is God created you to serve, God called you to serve, God gifted you to serve, God changes you when you serve, God uses you when you serve, and God rewards you when you serve. Anybody want to guess what the application of this word is? Serve. Find your spot in the body of Christ. Nobody in the bleachers... Everybody on the field. Everybody get in the game. Next weekend, on every campus, we're having an event to kick off the ministry year for all of our volunteers, for everybody who serves our church. And I want to call you this weekend, without apology, to serve in the body of Christ. I want to tell you, if you follow Jesus, if you have received his forgiveness for your sins because he died on a cross for you, if you have asked his grace over your life, if you have been given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit, if you are a part of God's forever family, if you have a hope beyond death, don't go to your grave with your greatest gift unopened. Go get the milk. Leave your crown in the garage. God made you to serve. And God's family needs you to serve, and you need you to serve. Jesus told us what his plan was for his family a long time ago. If you would be great, be a servant. So be great.